Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 396 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the second part of a two-part interview, Lucy Flannery speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about fallow and active creative phases, the terror and euphoria of live theatre, working collaboratively with other writers, and adapting and extending Woodhouse and Austen. You can hear the first part of this interview in our preceding episode, number 395. Lucy Flannery is an award-winning writer with credits in radio, theatre, film, TV fiction and non-fiction. Her short play, Bear Hunt, will be performed at the Ink Festival in spring 2022. She was a finalist in the Exeter Novel Prize, leads the Get Playwriting and Script Lab courses at Chichester Festival Theatre and is a member of the Writers Guild of Great Britain, Audio and London South East Committees. Lucy was the 2020 Writer-in-Residence at the University of Plymouth in association with Literature Works. Her credits include A Business Affair with Christopher Walken, Like a Daughter with Alison Steadman, The Story of Tracy Beaker, Tomorrow Will Be Too Late and various magazines and anthologies. Her radio sitcoms, Rent and Any Other Business, are regularly repeated on BBC Radio 4 Extra. She has co-written two plays with Greg Moss, Poisoned Beds, about the decline of the oyster industry in a south coast fishing town, and Lydia and George, which takes up the narrative 20 years after the end of Pride and Prejudice. She was the creator of the Havant Literary Festival, and a core writer for you, me and everyone, which has been confirmed by Arts Council England as the biggest crowdsourced literary art event in the UK. Lucy is an RLF Consultant Fellow. I spoke to Lucy at her home in Havant. I, one thing that strikes me well, about your sort of body of works, it's, you know, theatre, radio, TV, film, plays, but also just, I suppose, coming up from doing a lot of stuff for radio is that you need to generate a lot of ideas. You know, you spoke mm. earlier about, you know, this you know, little analogy of the houses in the street, you know, <laughs> and you need to generate a lot more sparks, I think, than, you know, perhaps like a novelist who really only needs one spark every few minutes <laughs> <laughs> and they try. Um, do, do you think that's something that's kind of, you, you just sort of naturally have, or is it something that people can develop, that ability to just sort of be productive, come up with more ideas, you know, have more sparks? What do you think? I think it's part of that fallow and active phase I think when you're in that kind of dopey phase and that you know you might vaguely hear something it might vaguely make a note but then sometimes when you're kind of in the zone it's almost like everything you hear sort of triggers off a, a school of thought and you think oh yeah I could do something oh I could do something with that I could do something with that or maybe that is just me I don't know I don't know but I think writers do have much many more ideas than ever see the light of day in any kind of finished product I'm sure you find this too Catherine it's it's just part and parcel I think of just being open to that and being open to, uh, I mean, it amazes me that people say, oh, I never read when I'm, I'm writing, you know, because I don't want to be influenced by any other author's voice. And I'm thinking, well, how do you relax, you know, and how, how, how do you live? How can you, I mean, reading to me is breathing. I couldn't not do it. And, and I need that, that stimulus as well. I need, I need my creative juices definitely are stimulated, provoked, whatever, or made to flow by reading other people's work and seeing other people's work and that. And it's, it's very, very important to me. So I think that's incredibly... I think it's recognising where ideas sort of come from 
Uh, and we've already said, you know, they obviously come from cleaning the bath. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's I think it's being open to have ideas. Uh, that sounds a bit ridiculous, but I think just being in that mindset where you believe stuff is going to come, and, and it will, it will yeah. come. They will flow. You can't avoid them. And those those sort of fallow periods in between projects or between ideas. I mean, do you kind of embrace those and think this is fine? You know, I'm I'm not writing at the moment. I'm not in that. Or or, or are you kind of burdened with hideous guilt when you're not writing? I used to be, but now I do embrace it because I kind of I, I suppose because I'm old enough to know that they don't last forever mm. and they are part of the cycle. And I, I generally do think my writing is better for having a little break now and then. You know, even just having weekends off and that and not writing weekends and, and just doing something else. Yeah. Maybe it's just going out in the garden or whatever, um, I think is, is, is crucially important. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because we're talking about me, what I was saying earlier about, oh, you know, it's not for the likes of me. I always felt that I could write a book because I'd read so many. That was the thing. Yeah. And I always kind of vaguely felt I could write a TV comedy or indeed a radio comedy because I'd seen so many, I'd heard so many. I grew up listening to things like The Navy Lark and everything. Right. You know, really, really funny stuff. And that's why I think theatre in particular, because as a child I didn't, I wasn't exposed to much theatre. It wasn't, it just wasn't what we did. Um, I didn't actually see that much film either because we, you know, we were too hard up. But it was an incredible treat when we did go, and, and it was very, very special. So again, I felt like I understood film, and obviously when I was you know, a bit older and I used to sort of go, I understood the kind of the vernacular, and and that's that's the thing I think about working in in different sort of areas. I think having to sort of work in one area makes you much fresher when you come to work in a, in a different one again. So if you're writing a you know one act play or something and then you write a short story, I think both are better for the right. for the fact that I'm well for me anyway for the fact that I'm I'm you know changing horses kind of thing okay. and, and then exercising slightly different writing muscles each yeah. time. Yeah, well that that's interesting. So with those all those different media you work in and different forms, is there one that you think oh this is home for me this is where I feel most at ease or or are you very much sort of spread across all of them I, I really do literally enjoy every sort of type of writing that I'm asked to do I, I really like I would say theatre is very very addictive live theatre it is it is so completely terrifying and and so euphoric when it goes well I think the most frightened I ever was in my life was the first time one of my plays you know immediately before the curtain went up because I'd never really experienced that absolute loss of control before because before if you're recording or you're filming if it gets messed up you can do it again <laughs> when you're on a stage you know you're flying blind and of course it's not even you it's it's them you know you've just you've just got to trust that your cast are going to make it make it work somehow and and the fact that it's it's different every night as well um it, it seems incredible you know to me um and, and again part part of the magic uh, you can watch an old sitcom and watch it again and again and love it and really enjoy it and, and then you can go and see a play and see it again the next night and it'll be a totally different beast and that, that seems you know really remarkable to me so I suppose if, if somebody sort of came up and put a gun to my head and I hate it when that happens oh, it's funny <laughs> isn't it yeah oh dear I had a pound for every time I probably would have to say theatre I think yeah. is, is probably the, the most kind of I don't know, it's the most adrenaline rush. Yeah. But I love, I do love, I'm one of those annoying people who actually likes the writing. I know a lot of people love having written, but they don't really enjoy the writing. I actually like the writing. Yeah. I like yeah. sitting at my laptop and, you know, tapping away and 
Well, that's mm. that's real bonus for a writer, isn't it? I it, think you know. It's absolutely, it's a real help. <laughs> yes, it, it really is. Um, you've done um, you, you've done some adaptations, well, obviously for sort of, but you 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 worked on the PJ Woodhouse stuff. Yeah, uh, tell me about that. How was that? It was great. I mean, uh, I, I love PJ Woodhouse, mm. and he's kind of a bit local because he he lived down the road from me. I'm on the south coast, and he lived in Emsworth before the First World War, a little bit after. In fact, that was the last sort of time he spent in, in, in England, really, in the UK, properly. And things like uh, Blandings started then, Lord Emsworth, of course, and I'm pretty sure Jeeves started then as well, or, or the first short stories did as well. So, I mean, really, really important sort of period in his life. And obviously, you know, tremendous local pride taken in, in um, the relationship with Plum. Yes, I mean, I just, I just love him. I just think he is, you know, laugh out loud funny. Just, just beautiful, beautiful construction. The way his sentences are put together, things like his chin had been um, published in three editions. I mean, that's genius, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can sit for a month and not come up with that. I could sit for a month and not come up yeah. with that. There's real sort of economy and elegance there, I think, and very, very funny stuff. And yeah, I was, a couple of, um, a couple of times I've been um, able to actually adapt for the stage and yeah it's 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 a real challenge and a real privilege I think because you have to try and really up your game Mm. to write dialogue that sounds like it was written by P.G. Woodhouse and I think one of my proudest moments was when I adapted one of the books and the biggest laugh actually of the night which involved the banjolele, was actually a Flannery line, hey. <laughs> not a plum line. And and I thought, yes, you can't see the join. That's that's really pleasing. I've I've done my work here. Yeah, I've done my that's job. But, yeah, yeah. I was proud of that. Um, well, I suppose, and I mean, sort of slightly linked in adaptation is um, one of the things that's sort of most enviable, but also seemed possible to me about scriptwriters is is the ability to collaborate. You know, and this is something you've done on many occasions. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your your first experience of collaborating with another writer and, and how you approach writing collaboratively. I used to collaborate with another comedy writer, another female comedy writer called Sue Tedden, who's actually also an, an RLF fellow mm-hmm. and probably a very well-known name, who's also, funnily enough, just written her first novel as well, just had it published. And she and I, it was great. We absolutely loved working together. We, we had such a laugh. And what was nice was going into pitch meetings because pitching can be quite hairy and quite often, you find yourself straying somewhat into Alan Partridge territory. <laughs> <laughs> the best of us do. If the first thing that you pitch doesn't fly, and then you sort of start, you know, getting the scrapping around, fag packet. Yeah, it's very easy to stray into monkey tennis if you're not careful. And when you've got someone else with you, it's great because they can see the danger signs. They can see when you're going into over waffle, and they can cut you off at the pass. It's mm. great. So we we did we performed that function for each other. We kept each other on the on the straight and narrow. So that that was that was wonderful. And I once went into a meeting and I uh, didn't have her with me. And I was sort of talking about how I do sometimes, you know, work with her as well, as well as on solo projects and that. And I sort of said more or less what I just said then. So that's one of the nice things. And then started to actually pitch my ideas to an extremely unresponsive <laughs> panel of people who um, increasingly did not like what I was saying I could tell and, and in desperation I actually said oh is it alright if I go and post soon now and she'll talk to you for a, for a little while while I just sort of calm down and they did not find that funny at all <laughs> 
but I thought it was hilarious and, and needless to say I did not get the gig um, so that was my first experience uh, and it was lovely and I've, I've had many of years and they've all been great I don't have any sort of you know horror stories I've never been ripped off or, or messed about by any of my writing partners uh, I've been writing quite a lot of theatre with Greg Moss mm. and that's been really lovely and uh, we've got our most recent project is uh, Lydia and George and Austin aficionados would have sat up at that, <laughs> this point I know because they would have recognised that that is Mr and Mrs Wickham of course and this takes place 20 years after the end of Pride and Prejudice and it's what happens to Lydia and her um, her rascal of a husband, and <laughs> and they are now on the stage, and George is an impresario, and, and Lydia is a leading lady. Um, and it's great fun. It's, it's really, really nice, I think, because if you're going to sort of do an Austin follow-on, I think you've got to really, really make it worth people's while, because there's a lot of nonsense about it. I mean, I quite, I quite like the zombies and stuff. I think that's yeah. quite funny. But I think there are some kind of slightly wishy-washy sequels and prequels and, mm. and all that and none of them really add anything much to the characters and I think some some of them are slightly disrespectful in as much as they are very specifically not what Jane Austen said was going to happen right. because at the end of Pride and Prejudice she says this is basically what happens yeah now having said that of course we also took liberties because she actually says that um, Lydia and George their affections called right but we've actually sort of picked that up and run with it. And in, and in the play, we, we've acknowledged that their affections called and they went through a rotten period and then things picked up again. Right. And, and I yeah. think that's okay. I think yeah. you can just about get away with that. So we are respectful of the source. And obviously, I'm not claiming for one second you know, to be in Jane Austen's league. I'd be an absolute idiot. But I think it's, it's, it's a nice play. I think it's fun and enjoyable to watch, hopefully. And um, I think... The nice thing about it is that if you are an absolute dyed-in-the-wall Austin fanatic, you will enjoy it, hopefully, you'll yeah. get something from it. And if you've never even heard of Jane Austen, you'll still understand the story and be able to follow it and, and enjoy it because it stands up on it in its yeah, own right. absolutely. And so, like, that's that's collaborating with Greg Moss. That, um, when you sort of come together in a collaboration with someone... I mean, I understand what you're saying about working with Sue Ted and that when you were um, pitching, you, you know, you could <laughs> stuff each other just veering off the cliff. But when you're actually writing, are you looking for someone who... I mean, how, I, I'm just wondering what, what, what it adds, what's the difference between writing on your own and writing with someone else? Are you looking for someone who fills the areas you feel not so comfortable with or someone who's very similar to you that you can yeah, bounce off? I think you've got to be on the same wavelength, mm. definitely. Certainly you've got to have the same sense of humour. I mean, really, I think I'm looking for someone who's going to take my stuff and make it better is, is, is the, the, you know, the short answer. And when we wrote Lydia and George, it doesn't always work like this. I wrote the first act, Greg made it better, Greg wrote the second act and I made it better so it worked really really well and and that's you know that's what you want I think somebody who's actually going to challenge you to be better and and also I think you you get this thing where I've got my authorial voice Greg's got his his voice and then there's this there's this other thing there's this entity this third entity Mm. which is us together writing and probably neither of us would have got there on our own um, and I think that's that's the sort of hallmark of a, of a really good um, collaborative, creative partnership. The other person I'm writing with at the moment is my son, <laughs> who um, is, is obviously a writer in his own right. And, and I find that amazing that I'm writing with my son. So far as I know, we're the only mother and son writing partnership 
in the country <laughs> if there's yeah. another one I'd like I'd like to know about it but that's again we're writing comedy we're writing radio comedy and what I found with that is is he's really stretched me to sort of be braver so not just in terms of sort of structure and everything mm. not not to take the sort of the lazy way out or, or the obvious route or anything which I hope I would do a little bit myself anyway but he's kind of said oh well, can we can we take it a bit further here can we make it a bit wackier right, you know right. a bit madder so yeah. that again you know i've got my authorial voice liam's got his authorial mm. voice and then we've got this third entity and we've come up with this um absolutely cracking sitcom pilot that we're, we're hoping we'll see the light of day maybe next year and that that has been an absolute joy because what i found was because we, we wrote a bit at a time so i'd write a scene or maybe a scene and a half yeah hand it over to him when i started to sort of flag and then he'd improve that and then take carry on it's like a little bit of knitting yeah, <laughs> and pass backwards yeah. and forwards and sometimes I would sort of um get up in the morning and he'd sent me overnight you know the, the new draft and I'd sit and read it and I would literally laugh out loud at some of his <laughs> lines it would make me howl with laughter and I think well that's that's good isn't it you know yeah. that's if you're going to be writing comedy with someone that is I think the minimum requirement that they, they do make you absolutely shriek with laughter yeah and, and vice versa hopefully he also found you know it's been very very funny so that that's lovely I mean it's, it's joyful writing comedy that's that's one of the wonderful things about it is yeah. it will you know you will have a laugh in the day it's like having a dog you can't not laugh in the day I think if you've got a dog <laughs> like having a dog right I'll remember that <laughs> you've written so many different types of material and you know, comedy and drama and monologue and so on and so forth. Can you see a common thread that runs through your writing? Do you look at them and think, oh, yeah, that, that's pure flannery there. That's classic <laughs> flannery. Well, yes, um, mm. I, can, I can certainly see sort of faults, you know, because uh, when I'm writing fiction, I can sort of see, you know, people gaze out of windows far too often, <laughs> I've noticed, and then, and then they turn to someone and say, you know, oh, and I think, oh, so that's that's all the bad stuff I have to take out. Um, I write a lot about grief, and I don't know why, but that is absolutely mm. a recurring theme which comes up. I do find that I really, this isn't a conscious choice, but I often think, I often find in my writing, I deliberately lead the reader stroke audience down the garden path, so they think this is this. Yes. But actually, oh, it's not this, it's this other thing. Yeah. So that's that's not something I consciously do, but I do absolutely recognise. And I, th- I quite enjoy that. And I think it's enjoyable for a reader, stroke audience member, yeah. to be confounded. I think it's great to wrong foot the audience if it's intentional. <laughs> not, yeah. not, not so good if it's not <laughs> intentional. So that's, that's something I really like. I recently had a one-act play on called New Year's Day in which the character is dressed as a, as a duck. <laughs> And it starts off hilarious, but also you don't really know um, immediately why they're dressed as a duck. And then it becomes obvious that that they're actually a football mascot and they're observing the two minute silence. Mm. And it's very funny. I mean, it really is shrieking. It was it was inspired by a YouTube (laughs) video, which my son, again, pointed out to me called Football Mascots Looking Sad, which I heartily (laughs) recommend anyone seeking out if they want to, uh, you know, entertain and amuse themselves for five minutes whilst having a cup of tea. But it gets quite dark. It gets and it gets very, very sad at the end. So it's, it's ostensibly a sad thing. But a funny thing as well, visually, there's this kind of dislocate between the sadness of the occasion and the solemnity of the occasion and the ridiculousness of the appearance and then the internal monologue that's going on is, is quite funny. And then again, it gets quite sad at the end. So I quite quite like that, I think, mm. where you, you think, oh, this is happening. Oh, no, it's not this. It's this other thing. Yeah, 
that that's the only thing that I've sort of observed in myself. I'm sure there are all sorts of things. I'm, I'm sure I, I don't have enough distance from my own work to to know. But I also really like writing older women. Yeah. Because I think you know why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> why yeah, wouldn't yeah. you write older women yeah. have had interesting lives and interesting yeah. experiences, and they're very underserved. I think both in terms of audience and in seeing you know their own yeah. Uh, experience and yeah. life reflected back to them so I, I you know happy to do that I was watching Mrs America last year on telly and thinking gosh we are so under entertained I think as a group you know just seeing something like this yeah. that is so straightforwardly catering towards that constituency yeah that demographic that doesn't often get concentrated upon yeah yeah seen yeah absolutely because th- the other thing I suppose sort of slightly leading on from that is you're the creator of Haven Literary Festival. Oh, and yes. you've been writing residence at Plymouth University and you're RLF fellow, obviously. And so to me, you know, that speaks of, you know, you evidently enjoy opening literature up to others. I mean, do you think you spoke earlier about how you felt writing wasn't for the likes of you when you were um, when you were young, growing up? I mean, do you think it's still something that many feel excluded from? And do you I mean it seems to me that you're someone who wants to try and overcome that in people and make them feel that they have a total right to do that as well. Yeah, and I think whenever I meet young writers, students, you know, undergrads, or, you know, I teach playwriting as well, and I obviously, you know, novices and that, I'm always very, very encouraging and enthusiastic. I mean, I'm, I'm challenging as well. I would mm. point out where things could be improved, and, and I would suggest ways of improving it. But, yeah, I think as a writer, you get a lot of disappointment. You get a lot of rejection. You get a lot of hard stuff. So, you know, why on earth wouldn't you encourage people as much as you possibly can because everybody's got their own um, precious gift which is their voice and and no one can write for them so and everyone's got that and I think that is a precious thing and certainly when I ran the literary festival we did try very very hard to sort of reach out to groups that wouldn't obviously be attracted to or, or even feel confident about coming to a literary festival because I think that's one of the real joys I mean if you if you run a jazz festival you could run the jazz, best jazz festival in the world but the only people who are going to come to it are jazz fans, mm. which is fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I think if you've got a literary festival, you've got an opportunity to do readings and panel events and debates and quizzes and games and, and all sorts of... Yeah, and theatre and, and all sorts of things. And one of the things we had was just like a trail of, of, in the high street of books by our authors hidden in the, in the shop window. And if you could find all of them you won a prize and the prize you won was two tickets to the local football team right. so yeah so who were one of our sponsors they were great and it was their, their, it was Haven't Autolouville who, and their name their nickname was the Hawks and it was Eyes Like a Hawk that was right. the thing so things like that I think yeah you know absolutely spread spread the fun spread the yes. positivity around books as a, books as a good thing as a, as a jolly you know fun thing yeah, we tried really, really hard, and and um, yeah, I was proud. I was incredibly proud of what we achieved and and the audiences that we managed to touch, in in the years that I was doing it, and and subsequently, I, I think it's it's um it's important. It's lovely to go and, and see the big stars and hear, you know, and kind of you know touch the hem of their garment and everything. <laughs> but it, but it's also great, you know, just to sort of hear each other and yeah. each other's work, and you know, some sort of year eight kid who's written a poem or something has got every bit as much right to be there and and you know should be heard, have that audience, you know, as as anyone else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And so do you um, Do you have any, any burning goals for the future? Do you think, oh, that's one thing I've never done or one thing I've never tried? Is there a, something that you've shied away from in the past? You say that now you write writing novels and so on. You know, Is there any other area that you think, oh, that, or, or do you just, just meander along quite happily and wait <laughs> things to... I can't write poetry. I really can't write poetry. Um, it's kind of my poetry is a bit like um, oh god, what are they called the people in Hitchhikers, so the, the the race that write oh, poetry, okay. the worst in the in the entire universe. Uh-huh. But I'm kind of okay with that, you know. Yeah. I, I've sort of made my peace with that. Yeah. What I would like, it's not so much that I'd like to write one because I've written many, but I would like to see a film get made because I've written yeah. a lot of scripts. Yeah. And I've been paid for a lot of scripts, and actually getting to see one, you know, see the light of day would be lovely because funding is always the issue. It's, it's a it's a very very fraught industry, obviously. Yeah. And it's it's very very difficult. I would not like to be a producer. It's very very hard. But that would be lovely. I mean, I have I've got like an additional dialogue credit, and I've seen my name up on that big silver screen, <laughs> like giant letters, and it was very very thrilling. But it, that would be nice to actually sort of you know to write a film and see it get made but really I, I would just accept a career in which I can continue to plod along earning a crust and just you know being read being watched I, I think that that will do me yeah yeah me too okay. <laughs> well thanks very much Lucy that's great that was Lucy Flannery in conversation with Catherine O'Flynn You can find out more about Lucy on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 396, which was recorded by Catherine O'Flynn and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 397, Michael Bond speaks with Julia Copas about his significant three little things. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.